believing that there's that one single dream job out there for you that is going to fill all your buckets is probably part of what's keeping you stuck. Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan. And mamas, today on the show, we're talking to Lauren McGoodwin, founder of Career Contessa and author of the brand new book, Power Moves, How Women Can Pivot, Reboot, and Build a Career of Purpose. Lauren has a life mission to help women build successful and fulfilling careers on their terms. She launched Career Contessa in 2013 on the back of her master's thesis project to close the gap in career development resources for women. Mamas, I read a lot of nonfiction books about money, career, and business. A lot. Probably one a week. And before we bring Lauren on, I have to say that I loved Power Moves. I'm going to be gifting it to new college grads and women who are feeling like they don't know what's next in their career for a long time. I'm really excited to introduce you to Lauren and share some of her knowledge with you today. As always, stick around until the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from this conversation, or you can head over to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Lauren for the complete show notes. Are you ready, mamas? Let's get started. Hey, Lauren, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Of course. You had a really big day yesterday. Tell us about it. I did. I launched a book. (laughs) Um, It was very surreal and it's was so incredible. I had so many friends send me flowers and balloons and gifts. I mean, I wasn't planning on really doing anything. So I'm really happy everyone else was very on board with making it a special day. (laughs) Absolutely. Especially because you're launching amid quarantine still, which is probably not what you expected to launch into. No. And everyone keeps asking me how it was. And it's like, probably how recent grads feel where you don't have another comparison. So for you, you're like, I think it was good. <laughs> you know, like I, I don't, I've never launched not in a pandemic, so I, I can't, I can't compare. So your book is called Power Moves. Was publishing a book always part of your career path goals? No. And also the irony of this is that I was constantly in trouble for not liking to read, was not a book person, maybe until recently in like the last five years, I really enjoy reading books, but I mostly do audiobooks. It was never really part of my plan. I had this agent who believed in me and believed in the story who was definitely the advocate for it but I'm not even that good of a writer I feel like so I was like completely disagree by the way (laughs) like I read the book it's excellent I've already told friends of like okay you have to gift this to your recent college grads because it's amazing so explain to me though what is a power move in your frame of reference the way I would describe a power move is that is an intentional action behavior decision move habit, whatever you want to call it, that leads you one step closer to building a successful and fulfilling career on your terms. The key word in that whole sentence is the word intentional. There are plenty of people who make career moves. We all do. A lot of them are very reactive. A lot of our career moves are things that fall into our lap and we react to them. So you can always make career moves, but the difference is a power move has a lot of intention behind it. So I think a lot of people hear power move though, and they, they're imagining these huge things, right? Like I quit my job or I went after this huge promotion, but it's not only those things, right? No, it's not. And, and I think that's where I really like the term power move because I feel like people use it always in like a positive way when they finally have done this thing that they've wanted to do. 
And my question back to people is like, well, why can't we be doing that on a regular basis? Because if it's the small steps that add up to the big things, then truly the only way you got to that power move was by making an earlier power move, right? So in the book, I give people lists of uh, the fact that power moves can be daily or small, medium and big. And of course, the big ones are the ones that are maybe career changing, life changing, etc. I've been saying this a lot where like, if you want to think big or do something big, you actually have to start small. You are what you repeatedly do. We've all heard that cliche for a reason. Power moves have to be part of your lifestyle or your, your day to day way of how you manage your career. So give me an example of what a daily power move might be. And I understand this can be different for all of us, right? Yeah, and it's totally different for all of us. And that's the other thing about power moves is that they're unique to every single person and where you are in your life stage and your career journey, et cetera. So a power move, a daily power move might be a morning routine. Every day going through that routine that helps you focus and prioritize your day. A medium power move might be setting a boundary at work. Or maybe it's saying no to a project, or maybe it's setting up a networking opportunity at work, or going to a meeting you don't normally go to and saying, okay, today's challenge in the meeting is to raise your hand and say one thing. A big power move is promotion, quitting your job, landing the new one, taking on a a project you didn't think you could do, a big career pivot transition. A medium one is maybe what a lot of people are doing right now, which is reaching out to people for networking opportunities. All of these power moves build on each other. And it's this approach to your career by integrating power moves into daily, small, medium, and big acts of your career. You don't do the thing where you wake up and go, how did I get here in my career? You're very intentional as you move it along the way. One of my questions is we have COVID-19 is happening, right? And there's a lot of people in our community who are like, I don't know if I want to go back to my career the way it was when this is over, right? I want something different. And you had a really interesting perspective on goal setting and kind of dreaming about what that perfect career is. So for people that are trying to figure out where to go next, what advice do you have for them and what would you have them avoid doing? Well, the dream job does not exist. So I'm going to pop the bubble really quickly for everybody. It doesn't exist. And in fact, believing that there's that one single dream job out there for you that is going to fill all your buckets is probably part of what's keeping you stuck. And part of what's keeping you in this feeling of you're never good enough, you never quite get it. There's always more and more and more. It's that hamster wheel metaphor that we've all heard of before. And there are some notorious career traps that you do definitely want to avoid. Obviously, just the belief that there's one dream job out there is a big one. And part of that is, and Stanford researchers actually did a whole study on this, and they found that what it does is it basically sets you up to believe that you have fixed passions or fixed purposes. Fixed means it's not moving, it's not changing. You as a human, the goal of humans is to always be evolving and changing. And coronavirus just has, I think, accelerated that for a lot of people. You don't want to set yourself up to have this quote unquote expectation hangover where you expect things to go a certain way because life changes while you make plans, right? Having the dream job just really, truly does not allow you to see flexibility and adaptability as your best professional asset. You know, they call it a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. The other career trap you definitely want to look out for is compare and despair. So this is a term that Dr. Alyssa Westring coined when she was researching it. And what she found is that the more you compare, the more you basically despair in the situation, <laughs> right? So this might not be necessarily new information, but in my book, I found actual research to back up everything. So these are not just like nice Instagram memes, okay? Uh, this stuff is real. There's science behind it. And 
what I found really interesting about her research is that women are more likely to compare themselves to other people than men are. So we really have to look out for that because if you are comparing yourself and you're looking outward toward other people to help guide you on what moves you should make next, that is reactive. That is not proactive. You are not in the driver's seat. You are a passenger who's looking out the window for what to do next. The other career trap that people fall victim to a lot is seeing busyness as this badge of honor, busyness as a status symbol, right? The reboot in your career is actually not about the hustle. It's about resilience. It's actually about taking a step back. You might be really busy and get 100 things done a day, but you might never move forward. It's much better to recognize where am I spending my time and are the things I'm spending my time on actually getting me closer to where I want to go or are they keeping me distracted? And there's a comfort in being distracted, right? When you're distracted, your head is in the sand a little bit. And I think that people just have to, I don't want to say lie to themselves, it's maybe a little too strong, but like, don't stick your head in the sand and be like, I applied to a hundred jobs today. And so I've done my job. It would be better to apply to three jobs and apply really, really well to them and be very clear about why you're applying to them than to do that, right? So busyness versus actual focus and productivity. There's actually something I want to touch on there. We mentioned earlier being reactive, right? And not making intentional choices. And I think that this is a situation in the world, right? Where a lot of us are tempted to be reactive, to change because the world has changed. So how do we get back into our own heads a little bit and figure out what we want instead of just changing because COVID changed everything? That's a good question. And I I think uh, there's kind of two parts to this question. One, there's the silver lining where our routines have been disrupted and we are maybe given a second chance. As you said, somebody might've been doing a job for the last 10 years that they were never really like excited about or loved, but it fell into their lap. They were good at it and they kept collecting the paycheck. It's almost like someone has come and rattled your cage. And sometimes you need your cage rattled in order for you to be like, okay, I'm going to do things differently. This has given me the opportunity for the fresh start. Some people jump off the cliff willingly and some people have to be shoved. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Coronavirus shoved a lot of us. So I think there's that opportunity. And then I think for the reactive piece of this with coronavirus, it sort of depends on your situation. Take a look at your finances and your runway for finding a new job is one or two months. Then yes, absolutely go where there is demand for jobs right now. Who, Who is hiring? Take that, but don't put this work on the back burner forever because that is how people get into careers that last for 10, 15, 20 years that they never liked, but they kept doing it anyways. So that takes obviously a different type of commitment and and a habit to, to make sure that you stick with this. For other people who maybe have a little bit longer runway, instead of just starting to apply for jobs right this second, which I think makes people again feel like they're being productive. I'll tell you two things. One, as someone who was a recruiter before, we have this saying in recruiting called spray and pray, where you spray your resume everywhere and you pray someone will pick it up and we won't. You might as well save your time with doing that and instead become extremely focused on that self-reflection. What do you want to do next? Why do you want to do it? Who do you want to work for? Why? Every hiring manager I've talked to, I um, talked to an executive at Instagram this week and the CEO of Dear Media, which is a podcast network. Both of them said that they have thousands and thousands of people applying for the jobs at their company. And the thing that they cannot stress enough is that you need to be concise and incredibly specific on why why that company, why that role. They're not going to read your three-page cover letter. No. And, and I feel like that's very reactive, right? That's like, oh, I saw this job on Instagram and so I'm going to apply for it. And I applied to it as quickly as possible. You're reacting to seeing a job opportunity and wanting to get your stuff out there to feel like you've got a shot, but you really don't have a shot. And that's, I think, something I can't stress enough is that 
it would be better to apply to two jobs than a hundred jobs a day. There was actually a speaker I heard at my first job, and I'm going to forget who it is, but that she was talking about how you have to ditch the metaphor of your career as a ladder and you have to look at it as a jungle gym and you're going to go backwards and you're going to go sideways and you're going to figure it out. And I, I thought I read that through your book as well, right? That we have this fear of going backwards or going sideways. And whether it's everything that's happening in the world right now, or that's just a reality of careers, how do we pivot our thinking a little bit to see opportunities that might feel sideways or backwards and not look at them as a bad thing? I think part of this is just how you speak to yourself, right? Your internal dialogue about forward, good, backwards, bad. You know what I mean? Like I, I always describe like, imagine if a car couldn't reverse, you wouldn't actually be able to get out of the driveway to go forward with life. That's maybe a cheesy metaphor, but the idea is that sometimes you have to go backwards or sideways to move forward. If you had a cement block in front of you and you just kept ramming yourself into the cement block, someone would be like, hey, go backwards to the left or the right and get around it. That is exactly what you're doing when you say, I can't go backwards. I don't want to take a step back. Sometimes taking a step back where you have a job that maybe allows you to be much more hyper-focused on one specific skill set sets you up for the whole rest of your career. Or maybe that's what you need right now for your to merge your life with your career. I think what we have been hardwired from society is to feel like life is a ladder and it's not a ladder. It's not a linear line. You've all seen that illustration where it's like what you think success will look like versus what it is. I also interviewed a ton of women in my book to showcase, look at them. They're all very successful and none of them took a straight line here. One of the women in my book is the chief marketing officer for Northwestern Mutual. She had worked at a bunch of different companies. She opted out of the workforce for a while and raised her son and then got back in. So like, there are no hard and fast rules. And she even created her own role at one point, right? Yeah, she pitched her own role. And I, I feel like what's so interesting about careers, for whatever reason, in marketing, people are all about breaking the rules. There is no box careers, people always think it's like a perfect square. It is a squiggly line that is more like a circle. You're in it and it's just going to be this weird shape. So I think my best advice to people is stop believing this lie that you are entitled to this linear line of your career success. You are not entitled to that. And careers also don't work like that. Also, the weird part about this is like, if it did work like that, people would hate it because then it would be like, oh, I'm just going to this step, this step, this step, and then I die. You know, like <laughs> they wouldn't like that either. So, and you'd have to pick your path from the beginning, right? Of I want to be this person. And we all change over 30 year careers. Yeah. What you want in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, you might not want the same thing in your 20s that you're going to want in your 40s. That's probably going to happen. And don't you want to be able to say, I've done this and this and this, and now I can transition into something else? I also think that people have to recognize that is pivoting. Pivoting is the squiggly line. It's taking the step back. It's going sideways. And there, there's no good or bad. So we need to stop labeling it like that. And I think there was another person you interviewed in your book who talked about the fact that we think of our skill set as limited to what we're currently doing. And she's like, you figure out over time that it's all the same skills. It's just how you label them and how you talk about them. Yeah. And over the years, we've come up with more clever terms like transferable skills, skills gaps. I've been calling whatever job people take between now and whatever it is they end up doing, maybe a bridge career. We're just trying to illustrate as much as possible with these other buzzwords and metaphors that it's okay to have these things. That, that's how it's going to get built. And you mentioned a little bit earlier about 
the reflection and not just getting up and the resilience. And I think that we see this hustle culture all the time, especially on Instagram, right? Of like, if you get knocked down, just get up and keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. But that's how you just keep running into the same wall, right? <laughs> like, how do we take that break? Like, what do we do instead when we feel like we're running up against something? I interviewed a positive psychologist, Dr. Zalana Montmini, and she said that start with moments of mindfulness. You can keep a gratitude jar at your kitchen table. And every time you walk past it, write down one thing that you're grateful for. And at the end of the week, read all those things. Like basically the the way that you get over that is you create new patterns. You create new ways of thinking. There's a really good part of the book that talks about energy. The doctor basically talks about how like your emotions are basically hard telling your brain what to think and feel. So you can actually change some of that stuff. And part of that is instead of living in the past, you can live in the present. When you're living in the future, you're anxious because you can't control the future. Almost all of this is just sort of rewiring your habits, your behaviors, your patterns, your triggers, your self-talk. What I would tell people to do from an actionable standpoint is start a morning routine that will give you some structure that will make you feel better, which kind of makes people who are like very hustle, hustle, hustle oriented. That will, that will help with that. Find moments of mindfulness, maybe practice five times a day, keep a gratitude jar and start with those things and see how it helps. The other thing is sleep is very, very important. Another thing you could prioritize is creating a nighttime ritual to make sure that you're getting enough sleep because sleep allows, it is so hardwired to so many other parts of your brain and your body, but Without that stress, anxiety, depression, all of those things kick into high gear. And there's a great book called Burnout, Complete Your Stress Cycle. And they talk about how like, until you can feel safe again and complete your stress cycle, you're going to have a really hard time doing anything else and doing it well. So there's also tips in the book on how to complete your stress cycle. But the point being is I would focus on those things. What people want to do is they don't want to focus on that. Instead, they want to apply to a hundred jobs or reach out to a hundred people for networking or spend all day having networking conversations. Well, yeah, your calendar looks great, but you're a mess inside, you know? (laughs) Which is why the first part of the toolkit, right, is self-care when it comes to your career, for sure. And mamas, for morning routines, I used to be a huge morning routine person, and I still am. But my routine used to look like it was an hour, right? I got up and I had plenty of time. Now I have two kids. So for all the moms that are listening, I found a way to shrink my morning routine to five minutes when it needs to be five minutes. So if the boys get up early, it allows me to still kind of check in, but do it quickly so I can get back to parenting and the kids that want to eat the moment they wake up in the morning. (laughs) As soon as they open their eyes. Yes. There's also um, Shira Gill, who I recommend following you guys. She's awesome. She has this thing called the 15 minute win. Her whole thing is just give yourself 15 minutes to complete a task, to do a thing. I mean, you could also call it the five minute win. And she was basically saying like the psychology behind having that small win in a day is incredible. That's especially helpful if anybody's having trouble with procrastination. Do it for 15 minutes. If you want to continue after that, awesome. But if not, give yourself permission to be like, I did it. I did my 15 minutes. I'm moving on. What else in self-care just before I want to, I want to talk about some of the other things in the toolkit as well, but what else in self-care do we need to pay attention to when we're at the office and when we're working to make sure we're avoiding burnout? That's a big one. I think the other one in self-care that I would say is getting your mental health house in order. That's a whole chapter. And the reason why it's not just your mental health, it's your emotional health, it's your physical health, it's your your spiritual health. I think the two big parts of the self-care section for me were about inner critic 
and mental health and just maybe we've heard more about mental health recently, but what about emotional health, right? How can you be in charge of your emotions versus letting them rule you? I think that's incredibly important because we are humans. So we have emotions. Women usually are a little bit more emotional than men are. That's actually a strength and we shouldn't see that as a bad thing, but we want to be the person who is controlling our emotions versus letting them control us. I think those are very, very important in whatever it is that you need to do to feel like you are getting that in order or at least checking that box for yourself is incredibly important. And I I think I keep finding out the hard way that if you don't take care of that and don't prioritize that, it will prioritize it for you. That's why the hustle culture, I, I think it feels safe and sane because it makes people feel good that they're completing something. But it's the equivalent of like taking 15 steps backwards, really. And I think we're seeing that too, right, with more people working from home. And when I left my old career and started working from home, you remove the bounds of when you're working and when you're not working. And then it's easy to burn out that way because you're like, well, I could sit on the couch and read a book or I could be productive. And hustle culture tells us that we should always be being productive. (laughs) So we have to learn how to shut that off. There's a a buzzword I love. It's called fawn, fear of not doing. We have a bigger fear of not multitasking, not doing all the things when we can be doing them than anything else. And research shows it actually takes just as much discipline to sit on the couch and read a book without distraction and feeling like, oh my gosh, I feel guilty because there's all these other things I could be doing. That's incredibly hard also for especially moms who are like queens of multitasking, um, but also high achievers, perfectionists. They're like, oh, there's no way I can just sit on the couch and watch Bravo TV. This is a waste of time. I should be doing all these other things. No, prioritizing your mental health and not doing anything takes just as much work and energy. Absolutely. My husband actually, a couple of weeks ago, bought a hammock and put it in the backyard. And he's like, <laughs> he comes into the afternoon. He's like, okay, you haven't been outside today. It's time to go sit in the Why hammock. Are guys better at this than women? I I mean, that's probably a whole other thing. But like, whole another episode. <laughs> my husband's really good at that too. And I'm always like, I can't sit outside. I have all this other stuff to do. But then you know what? If you do it, like I'm sure you've gone out and sat in the hammock and like enjoyed it. And you're like, wow. 10 minutes out here is, it does so much for you. It's you know? so good. It's so good. Especially when you're outside with the sunlight and just all of that is great self-care. But the next thing in the Power Moves Toolkit is relationships. So how are we managing our relationships? <laughs> some of us are doing well. Some of us are struggling. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, some people are really, they play all the networking rules perfectly. They're givers. They offer help. They don't just ask for stuff when they need it. They not just build new relationships, they maintain them. Like some people are like, I got that in the back. Awesome. Most people struggle because the idea of networking is like just one more thing on their to-do list. Here's why you should definitely prioritize networking. They found that the number of just like relationships in general, they found that the number one thing that has influence over your fulfillment and your career are your relationships, your work relationship. I truly believe this, like the most important career truth I can share with all of you is that it's so much less about what you're doing as it is about who you're doing it with and who you're doing it for. That should be all you need to know. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, the, the other tips are just- it's so, it's so true though. And everyone that's listening has heard this way too many times. But when I was at Goldman, originally it was my first job and I was in New York City. I hate living in New York City. It's just not my place. It was a stressful job. And I so I got an offer to go work at a hedge fund in Boston doing more intellectually interesting work for more money in a different place closer to home. And I jumped at it. And it was great, except for the fact that all my close friends worked 
at Goldman, including my son's godmother and like really close people. And I just didn't enjoy that next job as much because I could I couldn't find it was a much smaller company and I couldn't find the same people. And it's interesting that I didn't factor that in at all into making that career decision. And then I was something that I really regretted as I got into the new place. I completely agree with you. I think most people don't prioritize the people they're working with because they feel like that's like a weird superficial thing. Like, how can I know if the people I'm working with, I'm going to like? Part of that is when you're interviewing for a job, you need to be interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. So asking them, what's the team culture like? What are the values of this team? Give me an example how you would respond if somebody on the team didn't pull their weight on a project. Is there ongoing feedback and peer feedback? Are people giving it all the time? Or These are all good questions to be asking in an interview. And sometimes you do all those things and it still doesn't work out. But the bottom line is that I can almost guarantee that if you find a company and culture that is a good fit for you and you like the people you work with, you will enjoy the work. You will find a way to, maybe it's not the job you're hired for, maybe you eventually switch jobs, but ultimately that is what leads to the most fulfillment. And they have a lot of influence over your career. I call it your circle of champions in the book, but that is really important for you to build. Who are your circle of champions? Who are the people who have influence over your career and your life who can also play devil's advocate and give you the tough advice and feedback that you need, right? You're not circle of champions are not just all cheerleaders who are yes women. You need that person who's in your corner yelling, yes, girl, with the fan, <laughs> like your hair is blowing. But you also need the person who's like, that's ridiculous. That's not going to work. Get a grip. Or the person who's, I understand you're upset about this, but we need to move on from this. You know, like sometimes you need to have those people in your circle of champions is you basically want to be auditing this group that you hold in your inner circle on a consistent basis because you might outgrow relationships. But more importantly, it's almost always how you're showing up for others as to what your inner circle is like. People who are, Adam Grant has a book called Givers and Takers. People who are givers usually are more fulfilled and more engaged at work and, and quote unquote happier at work. And part of that is that giving to other people also makes you feel good. It makes you, uh, helps you build relationships. And I interviewed this woman who's an executive at Instagram and she said her number one piece of career advice that she's done for a very long time is she never leaves a meeting or you know meeting a new person without saying, how can I help you? What can I do to help you? How can I add value to you? She said most of the time just blows people away that you ask. <laughs> they won't even ask you to do anything. I, I think people need to remember that networking is about making deposits, you know, being that giver and not about being a taker. I, I can't stress this enough right now too. Like I got a LinkedIn today that was like, I'd love to pick your brain because I'm thinking about switching careers and I think I want to do the same thing as you. Now, what, what did you hear in that? You hear, you heard all about her, right? Here's what I need from you. Here's how you can help me. Here's what I, 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 I. Networking should be about the other person. And do you have any tips for, especially when you're doing this from home and primarily online, how do we, A, keep good relationships with our coworkers that we're probably not seeing as much as we were before and make new connections in a way that actually gets through and doesn't end up the email that you read and are like, why did you send this to me? Yeah. Don't say pick your brain either. No one likes that. Oh, um, no one likes that. <laughs> no one likes it. It's gross. Um, no. um, <laughs> I think that for your first question, like how can you stay close to your coworkers, create some sort of virtual water cooler-esque environment. 
for, for my company at Claire Contessa, Slack becomes that, right? So we have some Slack channels that are just like funny videos, funny little articles, like just things we're sharing that as if we were in the office and we turned around and we said, oh my gosh, I just watched this funny thing or listened to this thing I got. So have some sort of virtual water cooler feeling. Maybe it's that you have a virtual happy hour once a month and it's themed, or maybe you send an email recap or something like that with everybody's wins from the week. We actually have an article on Career Contest about it's called virtual team building activities. Those are all good places to start. We'll link that in the show notes, mamas. And then in terms of networking with new people right now, I would make sure that I think everybody's now heard this advice. So there's a lot of reaching out for networking. So I think the most important thing is that you want to approach it by making sure your email gets noticed. So sending a LinkedIn message probably isn't a very good idea. What I would recommend is maybe find the person that you want to talk to via link. I'm going to go based off of this being a cold reach out because I think those are the hardest. So cold reach out, you find the person on LinkedIn, you add them as a connection, give them a little heads up on why you're adding them as a connection. Once they connect with you, get their actual email address that's attached to that account and email them directly and be very, very specific in the subject line, like informational interview request, Laura make a good one. We're not trying to trick them. They don't like that either. And then in your email, keep it short and succinct. Use bullet points to give a little bit of background of who you are. So you're connecting the dots. This is who I am. Here's why I wanted to reach out to you. As much as you can make it beneficial to them, or at least easy for them to say yes. And in, in the sense of like, maybe don't ask for a zoom call. Everybody's a little exhausted with those. Maybe you can ask for a 20 minute phone call where you want to ask them these five questions or something like that. Be very clear about your learning goal. Make sure your learning goal is not to ask them for a job. And and I I think people want to help. Please hire me. Yeah. And (laughs) question number five, are you hiring? Um, (laughs) People I think want to help. They just, I think they're much more likely to help if you can connect some commonalities. You and I both went to the same company or I saw that we both used to work at this place or I just recently left New York City and I see that you just started living there. Personalize it. I just gave you the example of the woman who was like, I connected with you on LinkedIn. I'd like to pick your brain because I'd like to leave my job and do what you're doing. That's so open-ended. I can tell, even if I said yes to that, this is going to be a two-hour conversation. Also, here's another annoying thing about that while I'm on my tangent (laughs) is that there's a lot of information out there about Career Contessa and me. She could be like, I read this interview about you and I saw that you created Career Contessa out of a master's thesis. That would have been much more detailed. So do your research on these people before you reach out to them and be specific. Be concise and be specific and do your research and make it easy for them to say yes by not asking for open-ended amount of time or a way to connect. And let's look at relationships from a different angle too of... How can we be good mentors and champions for people coming up behind us, right? Because I think that that's a place of finding more fulfillment in wherever we are in our career is not to just look forward. Oh, absolutely. I actually think if you want a mentor, the first thing you should do is be a mentor to somebody else. It's kind of a way of one giving back and it will be fulfilling for you. Also, there's you never know what's going to happen with those relationships. Maybe they become your boss one day, but also it will make you understand how to ask and get your own mentor appropriately. What I I think is one of the most important things to do is that we look at people who are coming up, maybe quote unquote behind us and find ways that we can mentor and be part of their life and advocate for them. There is enough good stuff to go around. This is not a competition. I find that my hardest relationships, even as an entrepreneur, are sometimes other women. So I think this is something as a challenge to all us women is 
we need to knock that off. There needs to not be this feeling of like, there's only one of us that can get to the top. And also I can only tell you that the people I know who just give and give and give and don't worry about that, they always are either quote unquote more successful or they get ahead faster in life. Be the woman who's there to, to cheerlead and champion other women and do it in a way that is genuine and authentic. Being a good mentor to somebody is making time for them, listening to them. Just being a good listener is a, is a good place to start. And then like not using that stuff against them later on in life or anything like that. I don't know if that's like a super direct answer to your question, but I, I feel like this is just a challenge for women in general is like, check your own biases, your unconscious bias. Are you being harder on that person? Are you choosing not to mentor that person for a reason? Like, I just think that's something we need to constantly be asking ourselves. I've had a little bit of a different experience where I've actually had really amazing female champions throughout my career. And then in entrepreneurship, it's felt it has felt a little bit different. It's felt more competition-based. I found some of those people, but it helped me a lot advance early on in my career to have those people. So I love just always looking for anyone who needs some help and, and trying to give as much as possible. But of course, this is the Smart Money Mamas podcast. So we got to talk about the money part of our power moves toolkit. I guess we should do that. <laughs> we should probably do it. Yeah. Um, and one of the chapters in your book is called Letting Go of the F- Your Fear of Money. So talk me through what that looks like. I think speaking from my own experience too, is that there's sort of this feeling of like, if we don't look at it, don't talk about it, then it's not there. A fear of money is one, there there really is. It's an actual thing that you can have a fear of money. But I also think that one of the most powerful things in your career is knowing your money situation, right? With money, you have more career flexibility. You can create opportunity and options that you don't have if you don't have money. And I didn't want to skirt around this issue. It was interesting because putting money into a career book was challenging because I I couldn't not have it in there, but I didn't want this to turn into a finance book either. I think the important part for the fear of money is really making sure that you have a very strong understanding of your financial picture. You are directing that versus saying like, I'm not smart enough to figure it out. Oh, I don't know how this is going to work out. Or my husband manages all that. I never had to worry about it, whatever it is, or my partner, whoever. I think that the fear of money comes a lot more from outside messaging that tells women you're not good at it. Women struggle with numbers or some crazy stuff like that. <laughs> like we're not good at math. You guys. There's a lot of mindset stuff that goes into that for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of mindset stuff. And also I feel like most of the time there's also the whole the history, right? Like women couldn't have their own credit card without a guy. Like very recently. Yeah. <laughs> not that long ago. Ask your grandma. She did not have her own credit card. There's no way. I can't remember if it was the 70s or the 80s, but it was one of them when you finally could get a mortgage and get a credit card without having a man co-sign with you. Isn't that nuts? Less than 50 years ago. (laughs) It's just like, I can't. Yeah, it, it makes me very upset. But is it also a part two of that mindset, that fear of money keeping you from going after higher paying jobs? Yeah. I, I mean, the system is built to make women especially feel like, oh, those really high paying jobs, only guys are going to get them. Or you guys have probably heard this out about if there's a job description and a woman only meets about 70% of the requirements, she won't apply where a guy will meet like 10% and he'll apply, right? I think that it's definitely hardwired into us. If you don't have all of this, then you have none of it, right? It's like very all or nothing. And I also think that women in particular are less likely to negotiate. And research shows that 
when they are negotiating for somebody else, they have no problem negotiating. And they're very successful at getting like a good high number. But when they negotiate on their own behalf, they struggle and oftentimes they will settle for less. I think some of this fear of money also comes from maybe just maybe you had an upbringing where money wasn't something you talked about a lot. It's definitely been known to be a quote unquote tacky topic. So a lot of people kind of just stay away from it. Not here. We don't do that. Yeah, here. not here. Of course not. <laughs> like, you know, can you imagine the generation that's growing up right now? They have so much more money education, financial literacy and education than our generation had, right? And the generation before us. So every generation paves the way for another one. But I think the best thing you can do is know the market value of your skill set by talking about money. So I'm a huge advocate about salary transparency. And part of that is because transparency means that the power, the control is more in the employee's hand or the, you know, your hands than it is your employer. And the employers are probably not going to give you a higher salary unless you ask for it. And that's, I think almost maybe a good lesson for life too. Like you have to ask for it. The tiara syndrome, I forget the the women who coined this term in their book, but it's this syndrome that women, again, struggle with more than anybody else, which is if I keep my head down, and I work really hard, someone will come put a tiara on my head. If I work really hard, they'll give me a raise. They won't. You have to ask for what you want. You have to. And you have to advocate for yourself. And it's going to feel icky at times and uncomfortable. These are muscles that if you do not use them at all, one, you don't have them, but also they get stronger over time. Salary transparency, the first time you talk about money might feel extremely uncomfortable. You can start with your friends and then work your way up to your coworkers. Absolutely. I think that that reminder of your employer's job is to get the best person for the least amount of money. (laughs) Their job is not to reward you for the work you're doing as much as they possibly can. So going and asking is huge. Do you are you an advocate for sharing salaries, having salary transparency within your company? Oh yeah, definitely. I always get a lot of <laughs> feedback on that. Um, <laughs> and the reason why is because there's a very specific action that I think. Do I think that posting everybody's salary on an Excel sheet with their name next to it is what I mean by salary transparency? No. That is probably a bad idea. But what I mean by salary transparency from the employer is Give us some information on what is your salary philosophy? What data do you pull from in order to come up with those numbers? How are people compensated? Like what's the total compensation package and how is that created? I think the best thing that companies can, and a lot of companies don't even know the answers to that, by the way. So I think the best thing that companies can do is come up with this very fair, also research and data-driven system or philosophy for how they come up with compensation and then communicate that, right? There's so much secrecy around salary compensation and and just compensation packages in general. What the research has also found is that because there are a couple of companies that do this and the companies that do this have much more engaged workplaces, employee trust is a lot higher. And also that trust trickles into other parts of a company's culture. So for example, if you have salary transparency and people feel like they're being paid fairly, they're less likely to go out and job search somewhere else. They also might feel like they have, there's much more openness and they might feel much more comfortable speaking up and saying when something is not right. The Me Too movement happened because a lot of people stayed quiet, not because nobody knew it was happening, right? Also, it's kind of one of those things where I'm like, well, this is actually kind of killing two birds with one stone. I don't understand why we're like kind of anti against this. I'm not even saying that you have to put everybody's salary up there. But people will talk about their salary and you telling employees that you can't talk about salary 
doesn't stop them from talking about it because they know that legally, you know, so now you're just a bully who's intimidating them. <laughs> I don't think that's going to build a very good workplace. And at the end of the day, you need to have employees who are engaged and, and focused and dedicated. And if their focus is on figuring out if they're paid less, then you are losing money as a company. I think it's so interesting. People do talk about money and talk about salaries. And it differs, obviously, from industry to industry and company to company. But coming from finance, it was very public. We got quartiled, but it was also like bonus day. Everyone's talking. We knew what everybody's bonus was and how you were doing. And I do think it had some, you know, it's a very competitive environment. I don't think it's always the most healthy thing in the world. But you knew where you stood, which I think in some level, it does help. And even when you were looking at other companies, you kind of knew where everybody fit, which is a really nice, really nice piece. Before we wrap up here, Lauren, there's one more question I wanted to ask you, which is the art of saying no. And we talked about fond, which is your favorite, one of your favorite buzzwords. But how do we start flexing that muscle to say no? Because I think especially as women, we struggle with this, or I at least personally struggle with this. So how do we start at work turning things down without being punished for it? Because I do think there's also that double standard where we're expected to say yes. Right. So Laura Vanderkam, she's a time management expert. I asked this to like everybody because I was like, how can people say no without saying no? Like, how can we do that? Right. And she said that the way to filter if you should do something or not is if somebody asks you to do that thing tomorrow, could you get it done tomorrow? For example, if somebody asks you to do something in September, we're recording this in May, of course, you're probably open in September. So you say yes to it. Right. And what she was saying is like, then your life is just as busy in September as it is in May and September rolls around. And now you're doing this thing that you don't really have time to do. And you don't really want to do because it doesn't actually lead you to the bigger things, right? On a scale of one to 10, 10 being the really good stuff that leads you to your kind of more fulfilling, successful things in your career. This is not, this is like a two or a three, but now you've filled your schedule with two and three. So you don't have room for the nine and tens. When somebody asks you to do something, you can filter through, would I be willing to clear my schedule tomorrow to make time for this? If the answer is no, then you need to say, I think that is a great idea. Respectfully, that's not something I can take on right this second. Can we circle back at this time or that time, right? You could say something like that. If it has to do with like an assignment at work, one of the negotiation experts I talked to, Chris Voss, who wrote Never Split the Difference, one of the things you can do is mirror the person. So let's say I was like, oh, will you take on this project? You could go back and be like, so you want me to take on this project? Sometimes just mirroring, repeating the last three things they say makes someone double think about it and say, okay, actually, I don't need you to take on that project. What I need you to do is this other thing. You know, so there's also this piece about not being a yes person right away, but you also don't need to be a no person. You can start with extreme curiosity and ask some more questions. All right, you want me to take on this project? And they go, yeah, I, I actually really do want you to take on this project. You could say, I understand that's a priority for you. So can I show you the things that are on my list and we can figure out how to reprioritize this so I can get that done for you? They might look at your list and be like, you know what, actually those things, I need you to stick doing those three. And almost all of this comes down to body language, tone, voice, eye contact. And I would say making sure that from those angles that you do it face-to-face or over a video call, you have a lot of curiosity in your voice. So it's like, you want me to take on that project? You know, like very, so you want me to, to do this, right? That's what you want. Those are delivered completely different. Those were the best tips I got on how to filter for the nose. And then also when you're being asked to do something where you're like, my plate is full, I can't take on one more thing. Make them be part of your solution or your, your problem solving, which is figuring out how you're going to fit this in. That's perfect. And Lauren, for people who want to 
finish this episode and go out and start making power moves, what's the first thing you'd recommend them do? I think I would recommend that they start keeping a work journal. So for the next 30 days, create a habit at the end of each day or even at the end of each week to write down what are the things that you accomplished? What are the things that you learned? Did you get any feedback, both positive and negative this week? What's something you want to work toward in the future? I think just getting in the habit of tracking your progress is incredibly important and valuable. There's literally something called the progress principle where they researched all these people and they found that by focusing more on your progress and your small daily wins, it creates actual forward momentum and engagement in the work around you. So I think what we're also trying to do is to get everyone into this practice and this mindset of living right here in the right now that you can control versus always thinking so many steps ahead in the future or replaying the past. That makes a ton of sense. I love the work journal idea. All right, Lauren, and we have one last thing before we let you go. We have to do something a little silly. So we have to have you try on our Smart Money Mama's sorting hat. So the sorting hat is our version of a hot seat where the magical hat will ask a question to reveal something about you. Are you ready? Sure. (laughs) What is your favorite comfort food? Oh, so Trader Joe's makes these dark chocolate covered pretzels and I'm like a bag a day with those things. So um, if you guys have a Trader Joe's, they're in the freezer aisle, they're in a purple bag. You know what I'm talking about. For me, my comfort food's always sweets. I've just always been an ice cream, cookies, sweets person. But dark chocolate covered pretzels are that great combo of like the salty and the sweet, which is ideal. And then you get a crunch also. It's very important. I I have really scrutinized these and they're at the top. All right. That's good to know. <laughs> it's good to know. Lauren, where can people find out more about you and follow up with Career Contessa? Career Contessa is careercontessa.com. We are at Career Contessa on every social media platform you can think of, minus TikTok. Um, and I'm at Lauren McGoodwin on Instagram. And my book is at powermovesbook.com. Awesome. We'll have links to all of that in the show notes. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. I hope we get to talk to you again soon. Yeah, thank you. Mamas, don't you wish you heard from Lauren and learned about her perspective of power moves at the beginning of your career? I know I certainly do. We are so hyper-focused on finding the perfect job, climbing the ladder and advancing, that it's really hard to take that time for introspection and decide what we want. Work has gone from being this very contained nine to five, Monday through Friday, tool for earning money to being embedded in our lives. We're never fully away from it. Our careers and how busy we are seem to define who we are as people. That's not healthy. And while we can't 100% change work culture on our own, we can learn to look at our careers more holistically, to set boundaries, and to not get stuck chasing the next achievement without checking in with ourselves. We have the flexibility and skills to design careers that work for us. So what are you going to take away from this episode and into your work life? Well, as always, I've rounded up my top three favorite takeaways from all Lauren shared today to help you plan your next power move. First, prioritizing self-care is a power move, not bubble baths and spa days, though do that too, because that sounds amazing, but getting enough sleep, practicing mindfulness, eating foods that fuel our bodies and taking care of our mental health. I know it's not easy. Our lives are so busy there's that darn word again. And there are so many demands on our time, not least of which is our kids. But we'll never feel fulfilled in our careers or in our lives if we're not taking care of ourselves. Like Lauren said today, no matter how much you think you can hide overwork, 
the body tells. Whether it's more migraines, weight gain or loss, back pain, depression, or full-on burnout, we either prioritize self-care now or we pay for it later. If you're feeling out of sorts in your career or like something isn't working, first try setting boundaries and taking better care of yourself. Maybe you're in the wrong position and you need to pivot, but you won't know until you're in a healthy mental and physical place to look at it clearly. You may find you're looking to make an external change to fix something internal. Oh, and if you need to take a step back or hit pause on your career while you take care of yourself, that's okay. It can make the difference to finding more success later. Second, relationships and networking are crucially important, but you have to be a giver, not just a taker. We've all heard about the benefits of our networks, our peers we can confide in and bounce ideas off of, mentors that can teach us, and champions that pull us up. Yet, if we want to build a powerful network, we can't just be thinking about all that is in it for us. We have to take the time to get to know the people around us, find ways to help them and offer to mentor those junior to us as well. If you're too busy for coffee with someone junior to you, why do you expect someone you want to champion you to make space in their calendar? It just doesn't make sense. Lauren's perspective that givers are generally happier and more successful at work than takers, it rings true. It feels good to help others, but it speaks to the fact that our careers are long. We need to invest in our network and not approach people as one-off transactions. The email Lauren mentioned in today's interview, I'm sure she gets dozens of them. I do. Often, we just delete them. We want to help, but what they want is vague, and they could have sent that email to a thousand people. We have no reason to respond. When building your network, don't be that person. Be a laser pointer, not a floodlight. Instead of reaching out to a hundred new people, find five that really align with what you want to do or learn. Take the time to learn about them. You may find that their published work answers a lot of your questions. Think creatively about how you may be able to help them, or at least how you'll let them know why you want to speak to them specifically, and then reach out with a concise, specific connection. You'll build stronger long-term relationships. And finally, third, ditch the idea that your career is some easily predictable straight line. Over your career, you're going to go forwards, backwards, sideways, diagonal, and back again. Every woman interviewed in Lauren's book has a career path they never would have expected. Heck, Lauren never expected to write a book. One of my first mentors created her own high-level position at a company where that was not done. As Lauren said today, we've been trained to think that going any way but up is a bad thing. But that's not how careers work. We have to be open to the twists and turns and stay connected with what we want our work and life to look like. Something that feels like a step backward, even a big step backward, might end up being the best opportunity of your life. You never know. All you can do is stay present and mindful and make decisions that are true to yourself. I want to close with a quick quote that Lauren included in her book from another author because I think it is so powerful. In Perfect Girls Starving Daughters, Courtney E. Martin wrote, we are a generation of young women who were told we could do anything, and instead we heard that we had to be everything. Mama, you can do anything, but you don't have to be everything. You can say no. You can walk away from opportunities that don't suit you. You are the one that gets to design the life and career you most want. You've got this. 
I want to thank Lauren again for joining me on the show and sharing her expertise. I sincerely appreciate you hanging out with us today, and I hope you all check out Lauren's book, Power Moves, and share this episode with the women in your life. As a reminder, for links to Career Contessa and other resources mentioned today, along with a summary of our key takeaways, head to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Lauren. Keep talking money, mamas. I'll see you next time.